Now, believe it or not, that clip has a ton to do with what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, it, it, it truly does. It is eerily similar to the story of Genesis 3. Whatever you do, don't push this button. What button are you going to push? This button. No, no. That's the button of death. Don't, don't push that. So eerily similar. All right. Um, but hold on to that thought. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We uh, thank you for his grace. Uh, I thank you for the book of Genesis. And as we're exploring, exploring the um, origin of, of things, and we're talking today about the origin of sin, uh, just pray that we would see Jesus as the answer and the solution to our problems. Uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, there's an article that was written several years ago now that I've always uh, loved. It's, it was called Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. They ended up making a TV show of it. Well, she obviously got older, eventually met someone, and decided to get married. And so the author of that decided to write a new thing, and it was Eight Simple Rules for Marrying My Daughter. Uh, and I love, I love this. I'm not going to share them all with you. You can do a quick Google search and, and you'll find it. But eight simple rules for marrying my daughter. Uh, and as now the father of a daughter, uh, I find that these are very meaningful. So uh, rule number two, uh, there are many, many men your age in this world. There's only one woman who is my daughter. She is unique. You, on the other hand, can be replaced at any time. Right? Uh, rule number four, you may be wondering how to address me. Dad, Bruce, Mr. Cameron, let's end the awkwardness. For the time being, I suggest you st stick with sir. Uh, some phrases you should become accustomed to. May I wash your car for you today, sir? Are there any tasks I can do around the house while you watch the ball game, sir? Is there anything I can do to make your life better, sir? All right. uh, rule number seven, you may, in a very uh, male episode of Last Minute Panic, decide that you need to sow some wild oats the night before your wedding. Let's define our roles. If you are the sower, I will be the reaper. Um, <laughs> rule number eight, the vows you will take uh, commit you to be faithful to my daughter till death do you part. Be advised, if you break your vows, I'll immediately exercise the second part of the contract, right? And I love those rules. And I think that there is a part of us, as we kind of delve into this topic, I think there's a part of us that loves rules for others. That we love rules for other people. Uh, we don't love rules for ourselves as, as much. But we talked about this last week, that God views restriction of ourselves as a very good human quality that we need to learn. Right? God, God doesn't just view that we should say yes to everything that we want to do. He says there's something very human, very godly, and very good about learning restriction and learning to say no. And the truth of that we learned in the garden last week is that God provides so many good things. He provides so many good things that we can say yes to, and there really was just one no. But it is fundamental to our humanity that we learn to say no. It's important, it's good, and it's godly. So it should not be of any surprise to us. In Genesis chapter three, we get introduced to a tempter, a serpent, a deceiver, and the thing that he's going to go after is not all the yes. The thing he's gonna go after is the one no. And so we wanna kind of think about no for a while. I know it's kind of a negative, hard thing to think about, but in general, the tempter is gonna come after the no. That's the thing he wants to deceive us on. And so uh, let me uh, kind of, this is uh, Genesis chapter three, uh, and uh, we'll start in verse three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the, the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of gar the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing uh, to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's address the elephant in the room to start. Why does God create the tree in the first place? Right? A ton of people wonder about this. It feels wrong that God would even provide us with a choice. Why even have the button of death, right? The ability to choose. Why have a sin option at all, especially an option that potentially can hurt us, harm us, and lead us astray? And we talked earlier again about the kind of, uh, in general, the humanity, the important part of our humanity that God created in us, which is the ability to say no. God placed that inside of us. So that's part of who we are as created, being, as created beings. And it's important that we learn to exercise that part of our humanity, to learn to say no. But there's another reason as well. Uh, let me introduce it to you this way. My daughter has an elephant uh, that plays music in her room that helps her go to sleep. My son had one too, but Lila's is different. Uh, and by different, I mean, it totally creeps me out, all right? Um, it will be playing music in her room, trying to get her to go to sleep. And then every once in a while, like a voice will come over the music and say, I love you. And it's super creepy. <laughs> I love you. I'm watching you. I'm better than your parents. No, the, the last two are totally made up, right? <laughs> I know more than your mom and dad. Listen to me, the elephant. No, um, those last two are jokes. But we understand because we're thoughtful adults, that that elephant doesn't love my daughter. Right? I love my daughter. That elephant doesn't love my daughter. A programmer put those words into a chip and installed it into the elephant. Because here's what we know. We know that in order for love to thrive and in order for love to matter at all, free will must be present. It just must be, right? If a person comes up to you and holds a gun to your head and says, say you love me or I'll kill you, most of us would say, fine, I love you. But it doesn't mean anything. It's absolutely meaningless because there is no sense of free will and free will is just fundamental. Just like no is fundamental, free will, the ability to say yes or no is fundamental to what it means to be human. It also happens to be fundamental to what it means to be American. Right? We love our freedom. After church, some of you will go home. Some of you will go out to eat. Some of you will take a nap. Some of you will watch a sporting event. It is our freedom that makes all this possible. So we just know because we're humans and because we're Americans, this is just kind of embedded into us. The idea of free will, the idea of freedom, the ability to say yes and the ability to say no. And I believe that God placed that freedom inside of us because it's so close to his heart. Listen, we forget this. God chose to create the heavens and the earth. There wasn't a gun to his head. God chose to do that. God, listen to this one. God chose to create you. 
God chose to do that. There wasn't a gun to his head. At some point, he decided, Steve, and here I am, here I am, right? At some point, God chose to create me. God chose to create you. That decision, that, that when you embed your creation with God's decision to do that, it creates in you a sense of purpose. That God, if God chose to create me, he must have done that for a reason, right? If God created you, he must have done that for a reason. There is a plan and there is a purpose in your creation. Listen to this. Jesus chose to go to the cross. It was the ultimate exercise in human freedom. And now the truth of the matter is now you and I get to choose. God has that free will. He has placed that free will inside of us. So now you and I get to choose. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to accept his yeses and his noes? So if you'll allow me, this is just kind of an aside, but I think it's important to talk about. I want to talk to you about heaven for a minute. Because one of the biblical narratives is that someday Jesus is going to return and, and he's going to destroy uh, sin and death and disease and all of this stuff. And so one of the questions I think this story uh, helps us to imagine is, will there be free will in heaven? Because we know there was free will in the garden. We know there's free will now. Someday when Jesus returns and he takes us to heaven or, or we pass and we go to heaven, are we going to have free will there? Because if we don't, it ra- if we do, excuse me, it raises a fundamental question. Won't we just kind of mess it up? Right? If, if there's free will in heaven, won't we mess it up? And here's my belief on this is I think freedom and free will is so fundamental to who God is. And freedom and free will is so fundamental to our image bearing of God, of of who we are as people. I believe, and again, we are safely in the realm of you can interpret things one way or interpret things another way. So just take this for a grain of salt. I personally believe we will have free will in heaven. I I do, but we're not going to ruin it. All right, so if that creates a new anxiety, if, that, if I have the ability to choose, we're, we're going to do exactly what Adam and Eve did back in the garden. I, we're not going to ruin it. And let me tell you why we're not going to ruin it. Because when Jesus returns, several things are going to happen. All right? So right now, we kind of have this free will. But when Jesus returns, several things are going to happen. One is that Satan will be destroyed. Satan is the tempter, the deceiver, the serpent. And in Revelation, it is described this way, that when Jesus returns, he will be destroyed and he will be thrown into a lake of fire. So we're taking the tempter, Jesus, when he returns, is taking the tempter out of the story. He's present in Genesis 3. He will not be present in Revelation 22. The tempter is being taken out of the story. Our sin nature will also be destroyed. Uh, I believe that we received a sin nature from Adam. That when Adam and Eve chose sin, the Bible says that we have received that sin nature, that desire to, at times, choose sin. So let me phrase it to you this way, that uh, nobody is going to have to teach Lila and Sam, nobody's going to have to teach them to sin. Nobody had to teach me to sin. Nobody had to teach you to sin. We just figure it out. All right, so no one had to sit down and say to you, all right, little Bobby, you know, little Sally, Here's how you sin. No, they just figure it out. And if you're a parent, you've seen this happen. Like, Those little devils just figure it out. They, they absolutely do. So nobody has to teach us to sin. And that is because of Adam, that we have this sin nature. And I believe that when Jesus returns, that nature from Adam is going to be destroyed and it's going to be replaced by the nature of Christ. In heaven, everyone will be full of the Holy Spirit. 
That's also not true today. That everyone in heaven will be filled with the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and that's just not true in this world. In heaven, Jesus will be visibly on the throne. And I don't think we can uh, uh, underestimate what a powerful thing that is going to be. That as you're strolling through the gardens of heaven, as you're walking on the streets of gold, from every vantage point that you are walking, you will be able to see the throne. It will be the center. It will be the most amazing thing. And you'll look up and you will see Jesus in all his power and his glory, glory seated on the throne. So the question is, will we have free will? Well, yes, but the tempter's been destroyed. Everyone's full of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is on the throne. So the closest thing that I can describe it to you, uh, and this isn't the best probably analogy, but consider Jesus for a minute. When Jesus left heaven and came to earth, Jesus was fully human, fully God and fully human. Jesus had free will. Jesus had the ability to choose. Uh, Jesus had the ability to choose in a lot of ways, but he never sinned. He never chose something that God didn't want him to choose, and we will fully have his nature in heaven. Our Adam nature will be replaced with Christ's nature. So we are going to choose what is good and right and holy, but until then, there is this battle that goes on with our tempter. Right? There is a battle going on with, with, our temper, with our tempter, and here's the truth. While we absolutely have free will, I believe that's just innate to what it means to be human. While we have free will, the consequences of our choices are not free. All right? So while we have free will, the consequences are not free. And the consequences are real and they are often painful. I love the clip that we showed earlier because it is essentially this story. God says, all the trees of the garden you are free to eat from, but you must not eat from this one tree. So what tree are you going to eat from? This one. No! <laughs> That's the tree of death. Don't eat from that one. <laughs> now, let's back up for a minute. Now, what tree are you going to eat from? Groot, this tree. No, right? right? And, and that, that is the story. Don't touch the button. The button will lead you to, to death. Um, and I think, our, I think the story of Adam and Eve is the same way. They, they touch the button. And I think our story is the same. That the thing that God says no to, so, yes to so many other things, the thing that God says no to, we end up touching the button, the lie that got us into so much trouble, the addiction that derailed our life, the habit that hurt in the long run, the choice that led down a bad path, and it turned out that God's no was actually leading us to life. And so how does this insanity happen? Because we can all identify, it's like, man, I had free will, I chose poorly, the consequences are real and they hurt. How exactly does this take place? Well, Genesis 3 is a breakdown. We're gonna be in Genesis 3 for two weeks. Uh, and, and I wanna really dissect this story well because it's the origin of sin. And I wanna teach us how it happens, how when there's so many good things, it's the button of death. Has anyone ever had the experience of walking by like a bench and it says wet paint on it? What do you immediately think? I need to touch that bench. It's wet paint, but I have to touch it. I can't stop my, you know, what, what is, how does it come about that we end up touching the button? And this story shows us, it starts with a tempter. It starts with a tempter. Uh, I believe in Satan. I do. I believe he actively engages in temptation, uh, but I also believe that temptation is not always Satan. Right? Sometimes I am led astray by my own evil desires, by my, my Adam nature. 
Sometimes I'm led away by those. Sometimes somebody else might tempt me. Um, There's a lot of ways that temptation comes, whether from Satan or myself or somebody else. They always look like they look exactly in this story. Let me show you verse four. The tempter says, uh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I think every single temptation you and I will ever face starts with this question. Do I believe that God is good and is leading me to a good place? This is the very thing the tempter attacks. This is the very thing the tempter attacks. He is trying to convince Eve that God is not good. He is not leading her to a good place. That God is not truthful. He's holding you back. He's keeping you back. You can't trust him. And so we have to be reminded all the time. We have to remind ourselves. I think we have to consciously remind ourselves, God is good and he is leading me to a good place. God is good with his yeses and God is good with his noes. And he is leading me to a good place. This is why the doctrine of grace is so important. Because the doctrine of grace is the doctrine that reminds us God is good. God is good. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God is good. God is good. God is good. And he is leading me to a good place. Temptation will always, every temptation you could name has that as its battleground. Do I believe God is good? And do I believe he's leading me to a good place? So for Christmas, Uh, we got my son Sam this video game system uh, that he'd been asking for, and we decided to do it. And we tend to keep pretty restrictive on that stuff. I think um, he would say that maybe we're too restrictive, I guess would be, oh yeah, I guess that would be the nice way that he would say it, that we're too restrictive. And, um, but on Christmas morning, when he opened it up, we decided to do away with the restrictions. We're like, it's Christmas day. He's getting this thing for the very first time. He can play it as much as he wants to play it. And he played it for a good chunk of the day on Christmas day, had had a really good time. At the end of the day, when it was time to go to bed, he started complaining about a migraine, a, a headache. Um, that he'd been playing so much that he's just like, man, you know, too much, too much video game. He's like, man, I've got a headache. It hurts and, 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 all, all, and all of that. And so then the next day, the 26th, the restrictions come in to play. And he immediately starts bartering for more stuff. Ever since Christmas till now, he's bartering uh, for, for more stuff. And now we have this wonderful opportunity as parents that you just cherish these, that now we get to say, remember the Christmas headache. Do you remember the Christmas headache? Yeah, I remember the Christmas headache. We're not depriving you, right? We're we're not keeping you from something. We're not trying to take away something. We are leading you to good. The Christmas headache, it proves that your parents are good, right? And he, of course, at eight buys all of that, right? No, of course he doesn't. But it is this human nature thing. I think that sometimes God is trying to shout down to us that I am not trying to deprive you of something. I'm not trying to keep you from something. I'm trying to give you something good. And God is exactly that way. And we have to remember it. He's not depriving us because the tempter is going to come in and say, get yours, be selfish, do what you want, do what makes you happy. And I am telling you, it does not lead us to life. It leads us to regret, it leads us to sorrow, it leads us to consequence, and God is on his throne saying, no, trust me, I am a good God, and I am leading you to a good place. So there's a tempter, 
And then there's the fruit. Did you notice how the fruit is described in the text? It is pleasing to the eye and it is good for food. All right, here's one of the biggest lies that we believe in, is that if it's bad, we believe this, if it's bad, it's going to look bad, feel bad, and taste bad. I'll see bad coming a mile away because it's gonna look bad, feel bad, and taste bad. Wrong. All right, don't, that, that's gonna get you into a lot of trouble, I promise you. That's not correct. Sin is often pleasing to the eye, and it seems like it's good for food. But the truth is that while it looks pleasing to the eye and good for food, the truth is that God and his word is always proven right. Because shortly after we grab that fruit that looks good, it's pleasing to the eye, it seems like it's gonna taste good, that's often when the bad stuff starts to come. The regret starts to come, the, the consequences start to come, the pain starts to come. An uncomfortable illustration of this, um, and it is a little uncomfortable, this is in my family too, but almost every person that I've ever known that's diabetic describes diabetes this way. They're like, man, um, all I wanna do is eat dessert. And it looks good and it feels good, but that sugar is having a negative impact on my body. And, and here's my question. What if resentment does the same thing as chocolate cake? Do you feel like about half the year my illustrations involve chocolate cake? I kind of feel like about half the year they do, but what if resentment is just like that for a diabetic? That it looks good and it feels good, but it's wreaking havoc on our body. What if sex outside of God's plan is doing the same thing? Looks good, feels good, is wreaking havoc. What if pride does the same thing? Looks good, feels good, is wreaking havoc. And one of the tricky parts of temptation is exactly that, and here's the question. Well, pastor, if it looks good, and it feels good, and it tastes good, how on earth am I supposed to know it's bad, right? Do I just meander through life and find out like before it's, when it's too late? Is that what you're proposing? No, and I wanna go back to what we talked about earlier. The key to it, I think, is we have to learn to trust our creator God, right? Remember, every, every battle the tempter is going to bring is over whether or not we believe God is good and leading us to a good place. And, and this is the same way. We have to find a way to trust him. We have to trust his word. We have to trust his way. We have to put ourselves in environments where we learn his way. We have to connect with other Christians to encourage us in his way. And when his voice says, this is wrong, when his voice says, this thing is wrong, I don't care how it looks, I don't care how it feels, I don't care how it sounds, we listen. We listen to him. We obey him, we follow him, because he is a good God leading us to a good place. And he has not left us on our own on this. He pretty clearly and articulately uh, lays out what is right and what is wrong. We just have to learn to trust him. We just have to learn to believe him that when he says that fruit may be pleasing to the eye, it may look like it's good for food, but it's ultimately gonna lead to death. We have to believe him. We have to trust him. Lastly, so you got the tempter, you got the fruit, and then you've got the man and the woman. Um, and uh, they, they make some mistakes in this story that I think will sound familiar to all of us. Um, we'll start with Eve because she appears first in the story, but her mistakes are in this story is, are that she gets too close that God has called this thing bad, he's called it destructive, and the next day it appears that she's standing right by the tree, right? Just like the clip, it's just like the clip. That, that's bad, that's destructive, 
Eve, fruit, right? You know, she, she's standing right by it. And I used to see it in youth ministry all the time. It's like, how close can I get to the forbidden thing? But to be totally honest with you, we adults aren't much better. Um, we're, we're, really, we're really not. Can I get away with the white lie? Can I get away with a little bit of flirting? Can I hold just a little grudge? And this stuff is not leading us to life. So she's, she starts out, the very beginning of the story, she's way too close. She's way too close uh, to the forbidden tree. Um, she doesn't have a complete understanding of what God had said. I don't know if you noticed that in the story, but she adds a bit to what God has said. God said, uh, she says, God says we shouldn't touch the fruit either. God didn't exactly say that. Not that it's terrible advice that you should just stay away and not touch it at all, but she doesn't really fully remember. And part of this is the serpent's role in this story. She doesn't fully remember what God has said. And again, this is why it's so important that we know what God has said. And then the last mistake that she makes is that she exerts influence to those around her, mainly uh, her husband, Adam. So she takes the fruit, uh, she takes a bite of it, and then she hands some to her husband who is standing right by her. And instead of using her influence to encourage righteousness, Instead of using her influence to encourage holiness and obedience and trusting God, she uses her influence to eat the fruit. And then you've got Adam. That's Eve. You've got Adam. All the things I mentioned for Eve are also true for Adam. He's too close, right? He's standing there too. He doesn't seem to understand what God has said, but there is an additional thing that I want to encourage us with. He's also totally passive. I mean, totally passive. That he is standing there. The serpent is... Uh, uh, doing his thing, the conversation is unfolding, and this man, made in the image of God, called to protect his creation, called to protect his family, he is standing there, and according to the biblical record, literally says nothing. Literally says nothing. Just allows his family to head down a bad path, and literally says nothing. One of the first sins of Adam is the sin of passivity. And I think a lot of men, as men, I think we have kind of, uh, in our culture, we have kind of been relegated to the sidelines. That, that being men isn't, uh, doesn't seem to be very important to our culture. It doesn't seem to be very valued to our culture. But I want to encourage you men in particular, but, but also women too. This is for Eve as well. But I want to encourage you against passivity. It is the original sin of Adam. And I want to encourage you against passivity. That engage uh, with your family. Engage with your children. Engage with your spouse. God has given you leadership gifts and abilities in your family. Exercise those to lead your family toward righteousness. To lead your family toward holiness to lead your family towards good things, that you are the person who is standing in the family saying, no, I would have loved a line in that story of Adam going, are we insane? No, God said this is bad. God said this is wrong. And, and trying to urge his family away from the forbidden fruit. But he just stands there quiet. And it is a reminder, righteousness and holiness do not happen by accident. They don't. 
Holiness and righteousness require a plan. They require purpose. They require, uh, uh, they, they require that we move. They requires movement. That just, if you just kind of sit back and Netflix your life away and kind of engage into the culture, if you just kind of sit back passively as a man or a woman, you, uh, this is just kind of the, the, the nature of Adam that is in us. You will naturally move away from holiness and righteousness toward forbidden fruit. You just, if you don't take steps to say, no, I am going to strategize how I can move toward holiness. I'm going to strategize how I can move toward righteousness. I'm going to strategize how I can move closer to, to Christ-likeness. You have to think about it and you have to have a plan and you have to have a purpose because just left to our own inclination, our natural leaning will be all of a sudden the family that we're kind of streaming on Netflix is calling the shots for our family and our beliefs and, and what they think we should believe. And, and all of a sudden you just find yourself drifting away from all the yeses that God has given us toward the nose. Are we totally depressed? I, I, I hope not. Because here's the thing that is true for us. You have been given the spirit of Christ. You have that right now. It is not perfected because Jesus hasn't returned yet, but you have his spirit. And here's what, the, what that makes you. That makes you an overcomer. That you are able to overcome temptation because the spirit of Christ is inside of you and he overcame temptation. You know what that means? That makes you wise. It makes you wise that, that you have the spirit of Christ. It, it makes you wise that you are able to make good decisions and you are able to, to, to pursue holiness and righteousness because the spirit of Christ who is wise is living inside of you. You are wise and you are powerful and you are able to do more than, than, you, than you think. And so we don't just have to submit. We're going to talk about this more next week. We just don't have to submit to the sinful forbidden fruit and say, ah, this, I've got the spirit of Adam. No, you got the spirit of Christ in you. I just have to submit to this is just how I am and this is just what I'm going to choose and this is just how our culture is. You can reject all of that and say the spirit of, of Christ who rose from the dead is at work in me and I can choose a different path for me. I can choose a different path for my family. And that is an amazing truth that, that's going to unfold next week. Is next week we're going to see the consequences of this choice. And it's like the, the big question is, is this just how it is? Like, is this, is this just what we're, what we're uh, the, the consequences of Adam and I'll fall on all of us? And no, no, absolutely not. It's not just how it is because Jesus rose from the dead. So it's not just how it is. Jesus rose from the dead and his spirit is in you, making you wise, making you powerful, making you able. And someday he's gonna return in all of his glory and Satan's gonna be vanquished and, and sin's gonna be destroyed and we're gonna fully receive his spirit and he's gonna be on the throne and all that's gonna be great. But until then, make no mistake about it, you do have his spirit. And we don't have to follow the example of our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve. We don't have to follow that example we get to follow the example of Christ because thankfully we have this thing called the New Testament. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his example. We thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for his power. And I thank you that while sin has entered this world and it's important that we understand how and why that happened, that we have the spirit of Christ. So would you help us, Jesus, to be wise as we leave this place. Help us to be wise. We don't want to be foolish. We want to be wise. Help us to 
be powerful to know that um, just like Jesus overcame temptation, that we too can overcome it. We don't have to submit to the no's of this world. We can choose the yes of our God. And would you help us to remember this week that we are able, that we may get into some situations this week that it feels like we're unable, but because of Jesus and his resurrection, we are able to overcome, to choose a different and better way. And as we receive communion right now, may this be a remembrance and a celebration of all those truths. That Jesus has forgiven our sin and he has empowered us to live a different way. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As I said, we're going to